0: Oh, hi, it's me, Smasha. I finally escaped the box that Sasha's been keeping me in over the last couple of episodes to come and let you know that you may have noticed that we aren't actually dropping episodes on Mondays as promised. However, we are cracking the whip to get podcasts out on a weekly basis, and I will tell Sasha to hurry up on her editing. We hope you enjoy today's episode, and you will hear me later.
1: Welcome back to the newest episode of Fellowship of the Research podcast. My name is Megan Ward. And I'm Sasha Newer, And we are so excited to have you join us for yet another wonderful episode. Sasha, what's new in your life?
0: I've been buckling down and working very hard on a new chapter of my thesis outside of editing this podcast, which has become the new hobby of my life. (laughs) (laughs) But it's been really interesting. I'm looking at different gliders in the world. So things like flying squirrels and sugar gliders and something called colugos, which are big gliding lemurs.
1: Why are some things called gliders and some called flying, like flying squirrels versus gliding animal
0: that's a fantastic question the truth is that they're all gliders and it's a misnomer when we call them flyers so none of these animals actually fly at all like a bird or a bat however they glide around so what that means is they jump off a branch and they'll lose height as long as they're traveling forward but they can move much farther forward than most animals when they jump they use extra membranes on their body which allow them to do this but outside of gliding all of these animals also share some other really interesting traits so they're all nocturnal they all communicate in really high frequencies and spoiler alert a lot of them fluoresce under UV light which is super cool so this is all the things that this chapter is addressing and what have you been up to
1: well I sent off my invertebrate samples that I'm studying I'm trying to compare invertebrate diversity and abundance between different types of wetlands. some that are invaded by invasive species and some that aren't we just got those results back from the lab and so I have been meticulously trying to go through and revert proportion of mass counts down to actual individual counts and it's been very time-consuming and tedious, but I think I'm just finishing up and then I get to start my analysis soon.
0: Amazing. What are some of the invertebrates that you're seeing in your collection?
1: We have a variety of invertebrates. So we have a whole ton of diptera, which is the order for things like flies, a ton of mosquitoes, it's a a chronomidae and things like that. We have a variety of spiders, which is interesting because I'm collecting samples over water. So I wasn't expecting a lot of spiders to be present, but there are six different families of spiders as well as some columbola, which of which I'm not really sure what they are. So I- It's not even an insect or an arachnid.
0: Fun fact, columbola are actually sort of an intermediate between arachnids and insects. They're commonly called spring hares. They can be found everywhere from the hottest lava vents to literally Antarctica. Okay, so next time you're swimming, remember all the things that are in the water with you. If that doesn't make you itch, I don't know what does. Yeah, there's a lot more than just fish out there, people. (laughs) (laughs) But speaking of things in the water, we're very excited to have Anthony on to talk about his research. So Anthony, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Do you want to take a second to just introduce yourself?
2: Yeah, so my name is Anthony Arsenal, and I'm in the Environmental and Life Sciences program at Trent University. A fun fact about myself, I love snow and I hate seeing it melt in the spring.
0: So have you ever been on a podcast before?
2: I've never been on one before, but I've always wanted to. You know, now I have the opportunities.
0: Okay, well, we're very excited that you're going to have your first podcast opportunity with us. When you're not focusing on grad school, what else catches your interest?
2: So I'm very much into, like, uh, you know, health and fitness, and I go to the gym at least five days a week because I'm working towards uh, getting a superhero physique. You know, I love spending time in the outdoors doing things like cross-country skiing, hiking, fishing, hunting... And I like watching nature documentaries. I'm a big fan of Marvel and DC stuff, so I, you know I just can't get enough of that.
1: So, what defines a Superman, superhuman hero <laughs> physique?
2: Well, it ha- kind of like muscular and like uh, lean muscle.
1: So, are we thinking like Captain
0: America, or yeah, like more like Hulk. Captain
2: America or Thor. Okay, yeah, cool, that's kind of what cool. I'm aiming for.
0: So, who's your favorite superhero then?
2: I would say, hands down, it's always been Captain America.
0: I mean, you kind of have
1: the hair going. Like, you got the longer hair. But
0: Didn't he have would, long hair? No, Captain America's got, like, the curl. Am I
1: outing myself as, like, a not a true yes. DC or Marvel fan <laughs> right now? He had
2: He had longish hair and a beard at one point. Okay,
0: thank you. Yeah. It, perfect. <laughs> it, I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised it's Captain America given that you're not American
2: just the fact that he's like a human you know he's not mm-hmm. like uh he's not like the other ones like aliens and you can relate with him and he's just got kind of super strength like who mm-hmm. wouldn't want that
0: the one that's like actually achievable yeah I'd love to be the Hulk but I don't think that's gonna happen you no, I, <laughs> I don't think I would want to be the Hulk no well
1: <laughs> no <laughs> I'm too angry about it. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: exactly.
1: So give us a bit of information about your past research history.
2: So I've never been able to participate in any research opportunities before my master's. I did complete my undergrad in environmental science at Laurentian University in Sudbury. And like I said, I didn't do any undergraduate research. I was going to do a directed study on floodplain sediments with a stream in Sudbury, but unfortunately, the professor was laid off during the Laurentian University insolvency crisis which occurred almost exactly two years ago. And many amazing uh, professors were laid off as well. So I did, however, work as an aquatic monitoring technician for the MNRDF. I think that's what they're called right now.
0: (laughs) We're actually the MNRF right now, the Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry.
1: (laughs) The name changes very often. Yeah. Yes, uh,
2: (laughs) I worked for them out of Timmins, Ontario during the summer of 2021. And I did fish surveys and gill netting and mark recapture in lakes around uh, Northeastern Ontario. And it was a wonderful experience.
0: I've always wanted to ask a fish person, what is a gill net? Sounds like it would be painful for the fish, but I imagine it's not. Or is it? I would
2: (laughs) say it is because they're actually designed to kill the fish. Oh, okay. See, I had no idea. Yeah. The fish swim through, and then they kind of get caught and then uh, it's the end for them. And then they die. Exactly. (laughs) So
0: it's good way to collect animals that you're gonna be doing, you know, a lot of measurements on mm-hmm. or collect them for
1: autopsies if you want
2: right. to about like yeah. plastic
1: in their digestive system maybe you would have to catch right. them. So it's not like a catch and release system. It's a catch for long term study.
2: I did do mark recapture though, mostly angling, like to catch the fish and then like you know documenting them tagging them. And then I like, you know I came back like a month later and then also caught them again.
1: So you still study aquatic systems in general. Is that where your interest or passion for aquatic systems came about? Or were you interested in that before you worked that job in Timmins?
2: It kind of started at Laurentian. So I took aquatic ecology with Charles Ramchurin, the great aquatic ecologist, and really piqued my interest on it. I also took a few courses by another professor, Randy Zerzelski. He's more of a hydrologist. He also kind of piqued my interest about water. What I study is dissolved organic matter. And I also have a passion for, like, terrestrial ecosystems too, so dissolved organic matter is kind of like that perfect link between terrestrial ecosystems and aquatic ecosystems because you know oftentimes it's derived from the land and ends up in the water
1: if you don't know what dissolved organic matter is stay tuned because we are going to explore that in a moment (laughs) before we do that though what has been the best part of your grad school experience so far
2: i would say i enjoy being able to teach as a ta you know it's a great experience i think the best part is just having the opportunity to travel to different places for like you know field research trips in conferences and in fact I was just at the Society of Canadian Aquatic Sciences conference in Montreal last week which was an amazing experience.
0: What was your favorite part about the conference last
2: week? There's just like so many interesting talks happening yeah, it was really great to hear different ideas and you know able to like connect with uh, new people as well and just like develop like networking connections and things like that.
1: I think it's always cool when you can go to a conference and perhaps you know at your university you're you're used to your small group of close peers who potentially study the same things but then you can go to a conference and it's an entire hotel or conference hall full of people who are passionate about what you study it's really eye-opening that you're not doing your small bit of research alone like there's so many people involved
2: So I study aquatic habitats and more specifically dissolved organic matter in boreal lakes, its composition patterns, transformations, and how it varies in the water column. I also study dissolved organic matter in and under the ice in the Laurentian Great Lakes which is just the Great Lakes of North America.
0: Want to tell us what program you're in, what year you're in, and who your supervisor is?
2: So I'm a second-year master's student in the Environmental and Life Sciences program at Trent University, and my supervisor is Dr. Maggie Zanopoulos. She's in the Biology Department, so that's where I belong as well. She primarily studies dissolved organic matter relating to land use change, climate change, and lately she's been trying to learn more about how the ecology of the Great Lakes in the winter, Mm -hmm. because there's this like this large research gap in terms of winter limnology. Anything really aquatic she's covered, but her main focus is usually dissolved organic matter.
1: If any of our listeners are interested in grad school at Trent University and winter limnology and land use changes relating to dissolved organic matter is piquing your interest. Potentially Dr. Margaret Zanopoulos would be a good person for you to reach out to. So before we jump into more details about what you are looking into, what is dissolved organic matter?
2: Great question. So it's gonna be a long answer just because I feel there's a lot to that definition and a background is required as well. So uh brace yourselves.
0: <laughs> <laughs> brace the game
2: so going back to its very origins, so during photosynthesis, plants take in carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and they use the sun's energy to convert it into organic compounds or plant biomass. And when the plants die or the leaves or twigs fall onto the ground, they decompose and organic matter can be leached from them into streams, which gets into lakes and eventually into the oceans. Now the fraction of this organic matter, which is small enough to pass through a 0.22 micrometer pore filter, is what we call dissolved organic matter or DOM for short, which I'm gonna be using for the rest of this podcast.
0: So basically dissolved organic matter comes from plants decomposing and it's the really tiny, tiny bits that are left over once that plant decomposes and enters the ecosystem.
2: So DLM in a lake that is produced on land by decaying plant matter or soil organic matter we call allochthonous aloxinous DLM and that's because it's derived from outside the source, which tends to be more humic-like, you know, characterized by soil humus, and has a high molecular weight, so we often say it's aromatic in chemistry terminology and it tends to be not very biological degradable but highly photodegradable so microbes aren't able to break it down very easily but the sun is able to break it down quite readily it
0: burns! It burns us!
2: And if you've ever been to the Canadian Shield or the Boreal Forest, such as Ontario's Cottage Country or Northern Ontario, you may have noticed that the lakes and the rivers have this almost like a tea-like tinge to them, and that's mainly this terrestrial dissolved organic matter. And DOM that is produced internally in a lake, such as from aquatic plants and phytoplankton, we call autochthonous DOM, which tends to be more microbial-like or protein-like and has a low molecular weight, often referred to as aliphatic DOM in chemistry terminology, and it tends to be highly biodegradable, but not so photodegradable. And I should also note that DOM provides some benefits to aquatic ecosystems, like it aids in filtering harmful UV rays at the surface of the lake, which would otherwise harm aquatic organisms such as fish, plays a role in binding and transporting heavy metals like mercury and arsenic, which sequesters them away from biota, and it forms the base of many aquatic food webs because bacteria use it as a substrate and energy source. But there's also some native things associated with DOM as well. In many temperate and boreal regions around North America and Europe, they're recovering from acid deposition from the last century, from coal, power plants, and mining activities. So the soil is becoming less acidic, which is a good thing. But on the flip side, however, when soil becomes less acidic, it's not able to bind organic matter as well. So you're having more of this dissolved organic matter being leached out of the soils into lakes, turn them browner in a phenomenon known as brownification, which is being compounded by more rainfall events due to climate change. So this may have some consequences, like say for primary protection and lakes. And lastly, i say that dissolved organic matter can also combine with disinfectants like chlorine from drinking water treatment plants, which creates harmful disinfection byproducts.
1: As a little aside, I think it's funny in a scientific way, what you explained, and then you say things like the brownification of a lake. It's always strikes me as odd when scientists have like special terms they use and then something where they're like, oh, that lake is brown. It's brownification. Okay. <laughs> Get <laughs> dressed is so odd.
0: So, that was a great overview of dissolved organic matter, or DOM as you're calling it can we just go back to what exactly is happening to DOM once it enters the lake?
2: So in boreal lakes during spring melt and runoff, large amounts of terrestrial DOM is transported into the lake from the catchment. And you also have like during spring, you have is called spring turnover. So that's when the temperature at the surface of the lake is the same as the temperature at the bottom of the lake. And mixing occurs because there's no difference in temperature. There's no difference in density either. So we have the top and the bottom mix. So DOM, throughout the water column is going to be quite homogenous and it's going to be rather terrestrial-like. However, as spring and summer progresses, the terrestrial-like DOM toward the surface is going to be photodegraded by the sun, since it's very photodegradable, and it starts to resemble more of a microbial or protein-like DOM, which is also more biodegradable, so microbes can consume it. But you also have microbes, including algae, producing microbial or protein-like DOM near the surface, which further adds to it. And, you know, whereas in the deeper parts of the lake, there's more terrestrial-like DOM, and it remains because there's less solar penetration and because of the density gradient between the top and the bottom it doesn't mix.
1: Does all matter in all lakes undergo the exact same process or does it vary?
2: It does vary and for instance you can think of like shallow lakes that don't stratify in the summer. Stratify just means that you have this like temperature gradient of warm to cold at the bottom. So in lakes that that doesn't happen you tend to have a lot of mixing occurring so you're not really going to find a vertical gradient and in, in DOM composition from the top to the bottom.
1: So this like temperature gradient you're talking about, it's kind of like when you imagine you jump in a pool or a lake in the summer when you're at the cottage and from like knees down, you're freezing, but hips up, you're warm because the top like meter of the water is warm and then everything below that is cold. So that is also the same kind of thing that's going to be impacting the dissolved organic matter that's in the water.
2: Mm, exactly. Yeah, that's right. Because all the warm water rises to the top and then the cold water sinks to the bottom.
1: And so what changes between the lakes that allows you to see changes in the composition of the matter?
2: So the molecular composition of DOM in a lake can vary based on catchment characteristics. Like for instance if it's the catchment is vegetated versus not vegetated, the number of wetlands, especially if they're treed, or not trade, and then nutrient conditions and water residence time.
1: What is a catchment? A
2: catchment is essentially like a basin, like for, you know, washing, like they used to wash dishes in, that sort of thing. So like, around the edges, it's got almost like this border. So you can think of a lake, say the land surrounding it, there's some point where the water is going to only drain into that lake, and then on the other side, you're going to have water draining into maybe other lakes. So essentially, it's like just an extension of the lake, if you want to put it that way.
1: And that type of extension around One specific lake might be different for a different lake. And so that's going to impact the composition of the matter that's in these lakes. So it's not just necessarily the water in the lake, it's all of the habitat that also surrounds it.
2: Exactly. That really plays into the type of organic matter you're seeing in the lake.
0: So you mentioned water residence time is something that's playing a role in the composition of organic matter. Can you explain what that is and how exactly it's playing a role here?
2: Right. So water residence time is the amount of time it takes for the water in the lake. To be replaced by new water. So larger lakes is going to be have a much larger water residence time. In smaller lakes it's going to be much smaller. You can think of like Lake Superior.
0: According to the Center for Great Lakes Literacy, the residence time for the water in Lake Superior is 194
2: years. Whereas a much smaller lake it may just be like a few years. So the longer the water residence time, the more time you have for this dissolved organic matter near the surface to be fully degraded by sunlight. The DOM in the water column can also be flocculated out to the sediments, and you can have bacteria respiring this DOM to CO2 to the atmosphere.
1: Okay, this might be a silly question. How is water replaced in a lake? I imagine it's not a team of people bucketing out water and pouring in new water, but also does evapotranspiration work that quickly? How is water replaced?
2: Usually the way it's replaced is through precipitation. It can also be replaced by water draining off the watershed, like through, you know, rivers and streams. You can also have, like, groundwater as a contributor as well.
1: Okay, so there's a bunch of, like, natural processes that are going to help move water, like, through a habitat into another one, evapotranspirate it up, reduce it down as precipitation, all those kind of things.
2: For sure, yeah, that's that's right. There's so many sources of input as well as output.
0: All right, so I feel like I can picture... The DOM, especially the tea-like color of the lake, was very helpful for me. But how are you actually measuring differences in organic matter between these lakes?
2: So, we take water samples and we filter the water. We use an instrument called a total organic carbon analyzer to obtain the concentration of DOM, which we refer to as dissolved organic carbon or DLC, because DOM contains other, like say, like nitrogen and phosphorus, but it primarily contains carbon. So, we basically look at the concentration of this dissolved organic carbon in the DOM and we basically infer that that's the concentration of the DOM as well. And then we also use absorbance of fluorescence spectrometry. Essentially, it gives you uh, an indication of what the molecular composition is because okay. different compositions will absorb light at different wavelengths
1: and you had just mentioned that in addition to carbon this dissolved organic matter also likely contains nitrogen and phosphorus and probably other compounds so mm. you're able to tell maybe like the proportion of those different compounds to each other based on the results of the fluorescence
2: that's right yeah so we kind of use all of these techniques order to get to uh, you get a picture of what the composition is.
1: So your lab work seems quite complex. We just sort of reviewed some of that. Where does your field work take place and what does that look like?
2: Right. So for one of my projects and my thesis, it took place at the IISD Experimental Lakes Area, also known as the World's Freshwater Laboratory. It's located up in northwestern Ontario near Kenora, which is primarily what I'm discussing here today. Another project from my other chapter took place out on the ice in the Great Lakes. That was with the winter grab project where I'm looking at the dissolved organic matter in the ice as well as under the ice.
1: And you had mentioned at the beginning that limnology during the winter is kind of lacking. So it seems Mm -hmm. like this chapter of your master's is
0: hopefully going to help fill that knowledge gap.
2: Exactly. That's kind of like the main goal of it.
0: I'd love to know, because we kind of talked about how DOM varies in different temperature gradients. How do you expect it to look in
2: ice, or have you gotten those results back yet? I have, and actually, I actually presented that at the conference last week, and what I saw in the ice, it tends to be much more microbial-like. The ice tends to exclude the more terrestrial-like compounds, whereas the water had more of the terrestrial-like organic matter compounds.
1: So we've learned all about what dissolved organic carbon is, how it may change between different lengths in terms of temperature and ice and all these things. Why generally is it important to learn about that?
2: Well, such research is like crucial because you know human-induced effects such as brownification, which I mentioned earlier, and then eutrophication—you know all these harmful algal blooms and warming waters—may alter the normal vertical distribution of dissolved organic matter lakes and it, which may have consequences on the biology of lakes.
1: Okay so things like fish or invertebrates that like specific distributions of the dissolved organic carbon may be impacted if it starts seriously changing because of things like human disturbance or increased eutrophication so think like algal blooms and like like Erie when you can't go swimming because mm, it's too cr- disturbed.
2: For sure. Like when you have like brownification, some lakes are becoming very brown, which is preventing like maybe phytoplankton from, uh, you know, being able to, you know, survive in deeper parts of the lake, which also has consequences on like, say, the other organisms like zooplankton, which feed on them, which can, you know, affect like fish. So it's kind of like could be like a bottom up type of scenario.
1: So it's like a whole food web, like really any organism that is either in the water or even just uses the water to predate on fish or things like that. They could all be impacted by what you're studying.
2: For sure. So
1: what is the
0: overall goal of your master's work?
2: It's to improve our understanding of the molecular composition of DOM in the water column of Boreal Lakes, as well as DLM in the in and under the ice in the Great Lakes.
0: So who is your favorite Lord of the Rings character and why?
2: So I watched all the movies, and I read The Hobbit. I haven't read The Lord of the Rings, but uh, I'd say by far it'd be Thor in Oakenshield, because, you know, not only is he like a savage, and he's got this commanding presence to him. Will you follow me? Also, he has this extreme determination, and, you know, obstacles just, like, don't exist to him. You know, whether it's the ferocious pale orc, or a giant Benedict Cumberbatch dragon called Smaug, he never backs down, you know, he turns around, but he keeps on fighting towards reclaiming that lonely mountain. Good analogy could be, you know, as a grass Student. Sometimes obstacles come up like issues or shortcomings with data, you know, issues with funding, or there may be a, a temptation that we may want to not continue, but you know, we got to persist and obtain our end goal, which is. Not the Lonely Mountain, but our graduate degree.
1: It's close enough, I'd say. (laughs) Close enough. So you mentioned that Thorin is a savage. I will also let you know he is a secret romantic. So what is a grad school related secret about you that people don't know?
2: Hmm, that's interesting. I didn't know that about him.
1: I use uh, Lord of the Rings Wiki.
2: So (laughs) it's true. So I guess a grad school related secret, although it's not actually a secret. It's just that no one really knows it yet. Is that... One of my chapters for my thesis, the one on the ice in the Great Lakes, is gonna have 22 co-authors. Whoa. Which is a lot for a a master's thesis.
1: I would say that's a lot for any publication. For sure.
2: (laughs) And the reason why it's got so many is because it's based on the International Great Lakes Winter Grab project, which had many uh, researchers and involved in many institutions.
0: Thorin often fights with an elvish sword, something that most people don't expect him to have. What was something unexpected that happened to you during grad school?
2: I would say it's when Maggie, my supervisor, told me I'd be going to the Experimental Lakes area. It's just like so ecstatic when I heard that. You know, I I thought that I would you know, only be studying lakes around the Peterborough area. And I've been aware of the ELA for a few years because, you know, I've been hearing about it in my undergraduate courses, but I never thought I'd have the opportunity to go there. For
0: people that don't know, what is the Experimental Lakes area? Because I think we know why it's awesome, but maybe we'll give you a chance to, to tell them why.
2: It's this place up in, like, northwestern Ontario, not far from Kenora. Once you get there, you have to drive, like, 40 minutes down this windy dirt road and then finally get to the camp. And there's all these lakes there where they've done like actual whole lake experiments like such as microplastics, oil spills, and even like silver nanoparticles. But there's also many reference lakes as well where they don't experiment in. And some really important things that have come out of that place. Like for instance back in the, I think the late 60s, there are some experiments that took place where they, they discovered that phosphorus was the leading cause for algal blooms. Before they thought maybe it was like maybe carbon or maybe like nitrogen but after that, they're like, okay, so it's phosphorus is the leading cause. And that was conducted by a scientist called David Schindler, a leading linologist, who is actually my academic grandfather because he happens to be my supervisor. He was her PhD supervisor, which oh, I cool. think is pretty cool. Wow,
1: that is
0: cool. very lucky, yeah. yeah. And
2: he actually, he worked at Trent earlier on his, yeah. in his career.
0: Dr. David Schindler passed away on March 4, 2021. He left behind a giant legacy in the aquatic sciences. I've included a tribute in the show notes written by some of his colleagues. It's a really nice summary of all of the work that he accomplished over his career. And I really encourage you to give it a read if you're interested in anything that we've talked about today.
1: So essentially, this experimental lake area is like an aquatic biologist's dream location to Mm.
2: visit. Exactly.
1: sweet so your field work takes place at the experimental lake area in northwestern ontario we just gotta overview of what that is where in middle earth best represents the Experimental Lakes area and why. It's
2: a little tricky, but I would say it's a majestical place of beautiful, pristine boreal lakes and hills surrounded by coniferous forest, out in the middle of nowhere. So I would say maybe Rivendale, but at the same time it's got the character and vibe of the Shire because people aren't like stone-cold elves there, but they're happy, friendly and like to party.
1: (laughs) Nice! (laughs) Likes to party is a very good addition.
0: All right, so before we let you go here, if the listeners should remember one thing from today's episode, what would that be?
2: I would just say that dissolved organic matter is an important component of aquatic ecosystems, and we should continue to learn more about its properties and behavior in lakes.
1: So where can our listeners contact you if they're interested in maybe connecting with you or if they want to learn a little bit more about what you study?
2: So I haven't been on Twitter and Instagram for the last few years, but I do have an active presence on LinkedIn. LinkedIn. So you can connect with me and message me on there. And then uh, you can also maybe reach out to me at uh, anthonyarsenol at trentu.ca. And I'd be happy to hear from you and connect with you.
1: Perfect. Thank you so much.
2: Okay. Thanks for having me.
0: We hope you enjoyed our most recent episode today here with Anthony. If you're interested in learning more about Anthony and what he's doing, all of his links will be in the show notes below.
1: We wanted to do a huge shout out to Sadler House once again for hosting us and supplying us with all of our recording supplies. We genuinely could not do it without them. And also thank you to you, the listeners. We've been seeing an increase in listeners each week to the podcast, which we are so excited about. So please make sure you continue to share and interact with the podcast on a variety of our socials.
0: And as always, you shall pass. I just wanted to pop in at the end here and give everyone a March Mammal Badness update because we are now five rounds into this tournament. So, for our wild card battle, the Bumblebee Bat came out on top. So, go Bumblebee Bat. Itty Bitty Comeback City had no upsets. There were two upsets in the Mighty Stripes Round 1 battles, with the giant striped mongoose killing the striped polecat in a bloody battle. And shockingly, the wildcat was displaced by the Highland Streak Tenric when a domestic cat came in and ruined the battle. So boo domestic cats being released outside here at Fellowship of the Research podcast, We strongly encourage that you keep your domestic cats inside or if you do take them out, take them out supervised. There's no reason they need to be out there ruining the ecosystems that we're all trying to cherish. For animal engineers, the pufferfish shockingly beat the veined octopus when the octopus just refused to fight. It walked into the battlefield covered in a coconut and it walked out of the battlefield covered in a coconut. We also had a second upset when the Montezuma was displaced by the new Caledonian crow. This Montezuma went in to try to fight the crow thinking that it was a cowbird. And when the crow turned around to fight, the Montezuma just disappeared. So not much of a fighter, I guess. Finally in the dad bods, we only had one upset, which was actually the first upset of the entire season, when the Dayak fruit bat shockingly outlasted the greater flamingo. And this happened because a gull came in and managed to trick that flamingo dad to stand up off his nest, and that gull swooped in and stole his egg, causing the flamingo to run off of the battlefield. So I'll be excited to pop back in and tell you how all of these round two battles turn out.